Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And, Jim, we start with the Washington Post in our good martini today because they're actually dealing it straight when it comes to some crazy ideas being thrown out there from uh, one of the leading Democratic presidential candidates. That would be Kamala Harris, Democrat senator from California. She tweeted out three days ago, the average tax refund is down about $170 compared to last year. Let's call the president's tax cut what it is, a middle-class tax hike to line the pockets of already wealthy corporations and the 1%. Now, over at Hot Air, Ed Morrissey has been looking at this. He says Washington Post fact-checker Glenn Kessler branded this hot take as nonsensical and misleading, awarding Harris the full four Pinocchios. Yes, the tax refund average has dropped, but that's because four out of five earners did not update their W-4 for withholding after the tax cuts took effect as they were warned to do. Even with that aside, tax refunds don't reflect tax liability. The point of the tax cuts isn't to end up with big refunds. It's to pay less in taxes. And that's what happened with the tax cuts enacted in December. If you cut over to Glenn Kessler's piece, he says, oh, the Joint Tax Committee and the Tax Policy Center, which is clearly not a conservative outlet, uh, that took a look at this and found that 80.4% of all taxpayers would have a tax cut compared with about 5% experiencing a tax increase. In the middle quintile, 91% would get a tax cut, averaging about $1,090, with 7.3% facing a tax increase, averaging about $910. And so uh, Cato Institute figures out that if you exclude payroll taxes, which weren't touched in this, uh, folks in the middle class got a pretty nice tax cut. So... Jim, what do you make of the math, and what do you make of uh, Harris trying to spin what's not true here? Sure. Well, I guess the first thing is, I, I remember a couple of years ago, it was either the Hill or CQ or Roll Call, some Capitol Hill-focused uh, publications called up every office of the House and Senate and said, does the congressman or senator do his own taxes, or does he hire someone else to do it for him? And they, they collected as many answers as they could. I'm struck by the sheer number of people who talk about taxes and who don't really understand them. Uh, now, look, I'll admit I don't understand the tax code as much as I, w- as much as I uh, wish I did or should. My dad, the accountant, is probably yelling at his uh, computer right now as I say this. But uh, it's a recognition that, like, okay, what you withhold each month, you don't want to, you know, pay no taxes all year round and then all of a sudden get a, a, a bill that's, you know, five figures like, oh, my goodness, I owe all these. Things. So usually your employer or if you are self-employed, you end up uh, sending in quarterly checks to the government. So you don't owe this big chunk at the end of the year. You have it withheld. And then at the end of the year, they, they calculate your taxes. Either you do it yourself. Maybe you use TurboTax. Maybe, you know, you have your accountant doing it for you. You put it all together and they say, OK, this is how much we've calculated you owe. Now let's look at how much you paid over the course of the year. And if the amount you paid over the course of the year, well, that's why you get the refund. Yay! Now, you know, folks on the right have long argued you shouldn't be that excited about your tax refund because basically what it means is you gave the government an interest-free loan of all that money for the entirety of the year, and now the government is giving that money back to you. Most people like having that refund check at the end of April. Uh, The last thing you want is to actually owe taxes you may recall when the tax cut passed, Greg, there were all these people saying, oh, my God, I just ran the numbers and my taxes are going to go up so much. 
Now, it's not impossible that your taxes would go up uh, from compared to the old tax system to the uh, the ones passed by Congress in 2017, but it's a really rare set of circumstances. I think my favorite was USA Today running the numbers of saying that if you had a million dollars in income but did not own any property, <laughs> which is probably a pretty rare setup, um, and you were single, no children, uh, taking no deductions for anything like that, uh, and there's like one or two other things, then you would end up with a slightly higher tax bill. I, I remember some people lamenting this. I remember, you know, um, again, not being an accountant, but just kind of saying like one of the big issues we've talked about on this podcast a couple of times was the cap on the state and local tax deduction capped it at 10,000. That's not going to hit most people. But if you live in New York or California or Illinois uh, or New Jersey or some of these other really high local and state tax uh, states, maybe it is going to hit you. But on the other hand, you're getting a federal tax, you're getting lower rates on your federal taxes. So it should either balance out you'd have to have a really rare set of circumstances in which you have relatively low income, but maybe if you owned a ton of property and you had to pay a lot of property taxes each year, maybe that would come out. I remember having this interaction with a woman on Twitter and she's like, no, nah, it's really going to hit me. It's really going to hit me. And I'm like, really, how much you, you know, she said, yeah, oh, oh, every year I have to deduct 30 to $40,000 in property taxes. Wow. I said, look, I, you know, if you don't mind my asking, you know, this is, this is a really rare set of circumstances. Let's just say she was making mid uh, mid six figures. Um, now, you know, this woman, I feel bad for her. I'm sure she's upset about paying more in taxes because of this. But um, Greg, when you're making mid six figures, I mean, like, I don't mean like, you know, six figures, like you hit a hundred grand. I mean, she was in the neighborhood of a half million dollars a year. I don't think that can count as a tax hike on the backs of the middle class. I think when you're making a half million a year, you're not in the middle class anymore. Um, and so I felt, you know, now again, maybe this woman's run the numbers here. It's conceivable that some people are going to be end up paying more. But like I said, it's a really rare set of circumstances. And oh, by the way, you can adjust the numbers a little bit by writing a check to a charity, um, various other little things you can do to uh, to lower your tax burden here and there, uh, including things that we're not such big fans. I, do, I guess there's the electric car tax credit still around because at that point you get like 7,000 uh, tax credit or something like that. So anyway, the point is do your taxes, compare your numbers from this year to last year. I think most people can look at this and say, hey, this turned out to be a really good deal for it. And you should not mistake your withholding versus uh, and your rebate versus your overall tax bill. Well, excellent point. And I'm also glad to see the Washington Post actually dealing straight on this because a few days ago, I was reading one of their stories where they were highlighting people who were very frustrated that they weren't getting bigger refunds. They had plans of what to do with the refunds they were expecting, and now they can't do them. And they were having these typical you know, middle-class families. One's a first responder, one's a teacher. I think the couple they profiled was in New Jersey. This 13-paragraph article, and until you got to paragraph 11 or 12, uh, they were just talking about how horrible this is. And then in 11 or 12, it says, actually, they are getting uh, a lower tax bill overall. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Thanks for burying the lead. All right, let's move on to our bad martini today, Jim. And uh, this is going to be a rare event here on the Three Martini Lunch. Uh, Usually I get a little squeamish when the clips get longer than a minute. This one's going to be 4 minutes 18 seconds because it's the entire line of questioning yesterday between Minnesota Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. She's been talked about a lot here and many other places in the past several weeks. And Elliot Abrams. Elliot Abrams was a State Department official back in the 80s. He was very focused on 
freedom in Central and Latin America, in El Salvador, uh, as well as Nicaragua at the time, which is how he got caught up in the Iran-Contra investigation. And ultimately, as you'll hear the congresswoman say, he ended up pleading guilty to a couple of things. Well, he later worked for the George W. Bush administration with the National Security Council, and now he's back with the Trump administration with uh, a focus on what's going on in Venezuela. So here's Ilhan Omar, first of all, starting off by calling him Mr. Adams instead of Mr. Abrams, and uh, the uh, confrontation just proceeds from there. Take a listen. Mr. Adams, in 1991, you pleaded guilty to two counts of withholding information from Congress regarding your involvement in the Iran Cortra affair, for which you were later barred by President George H.W. Bush. I failed to understand uh, why members of this committee or the American people should find any testimony that you give uh, today to be truthful. If I can respond to that. Uh, um, it wasn't a question. I, on February, that was it not was that was attack, not a question. I that was the, I I reserve the right I'm to my sorry. time. It is not it is not right. That was Members not a question. Can attack on February eighth, who is not permitted to reply. That that was not a question. Thank you for your participation. On February eighth, nineteen eighty two, you testified before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee about U.S. policy in El Salvador. In that hearing. You dismissed as communist propaganda report about the massacre of El Mosote, in which more than 800 civilians, including children as young as two years old, were brutally murdered by U.S. trained troops. During that massacre, some of those troops bragged about raping a 12-year-old girl before they killed them girls before they killed them. You later said that the U.S. policy in El Salvador was a fabulous achievement. Yes or no, do you still think so? From the day that President Duarte was elected in a free election to this day, El Salvador has been a democracy. That's a fabulous achievement. Yes or no, do you think that massacre was a fabulous achievement that happened under our watch. That is a ridiculous question. and I Yes not or no? No. I, I will sorry, Mr. I will Chairman, take that as a yes. I am not going to respond to that kind of personal <laughs> attack, which is not a question. Yes or no, would you support an armed faction within Venezuela that engages in war crimes, crimes against humanity or genocide, if you believe they were serving U.S. interest, as you did in Guatemala, El Salvador, and Nicaragua? I am not going to respond to that question. I'm sorry. I don't think this entire line of questioning is meant to be real questions, and so I will not reply. Whether you, under your watch, a genocide will take place, and you will look the other way because American interests were being upheld, is a fair question. Because the American people want to know that anytime we engage a country, that we think about what our actions could be and how we believe our values are being farthered. That is my question. Will you make sure 
that human rights are not violated and that we uphold international and human rights? I suppose there is a question in there, and the answer is that the entire thrust of American policy in Venezuela <clears throat> is to support the Venezuelan people's effort to restore democracy to their country. That's our policy. I don't think anybody disputes that. The question I had for you is that the interest, does the interest of the United States include protecting human rights and include protecting people against genocide? That is always the position of the United States. Thank you. I yield back my time. Jim, uh, she could be in the bad or the crazy martini pretty much uh, every day uh, based on her track record so far. The best part, and I think folks heard you chuckling in the background, is when she asked him if uh, a massacre by uh, U.S. trained forces in El Salvador was considered a great achievement. He said no, and she'll take that as a yes. Um, and so just on and on and on. It's, it's obvious from watching it, probably more so than listening to it, that uh, – Pretty sure she didn't write the, uh, the the copy there for those questions or her diatribe. But uh, the fact that she's on this foreign relations committee is ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, look, I understand folks on the right getting extraordinarily upset about this congresswoman. I can understand the amount of tension being given to her. I can understand the people who argue she does not belong, you know, not on this committee and arguably not in Congress but let's face it, Greg, we're not dealing with the sharpest knife in the drawer. Right? This, is, we're, this isn't out of fear, right, of, of her, you know, uh, wicked wit and, and encyclopedic knowledge of United States foreign policy. Like, fairly obviously, she's got these questions in front of her. And she knows how to do the high dudgeon routine. And she, she's, oh, she's bad. But you can tell, like, she, she hasn't even done the Cliff's Notes versions of uh, U.S. policy in Central America during the Reagan administration. First of all, if you're fooling yourself into saying, oh, you know, Daniel Ortega was the good guy. No, no. Take a look at his record. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of strong ones. But I guess what I, I'll, I'll begin by being the nicest thing I can say, Greg, uh, about Cong the congresswoman. The fact that she calls him Adams instead of Abrams uh, <laughs> is probably the strongest argument against her being anti-Semitic. She, she moved from, you know, but not only did she get his name wrong, she got his, her, his name wrong in the less Jewish sounding name. Um <laughs> Basically, her arguments are, are you pro-massacre, sir? <laughs> as if, yeah, as if he's going to say, yeah. But the second thing, as, as you point out, like, all of these, quite not just, at one point, like she says, I, I basically have no reason to believe you because of the Iran-Contra thing. Now, she's free to have that opinion. It is something to just berate the, the witness and then not ask any questions. And when he decides to object and when he decides to say, well, actually, you know, here, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell you, you, know, you just basically just called him a liar and you're going to deny him the opportunity to respond to the accusation. Um, the moment, no, I will take that as a yes. Great. That's right out of Veep. Uh, <laughs> you talk about lines I wish I had written in the weed agency. That is right up there. And basically another question basically amounts to, are you pro-war crime? Even if Abrams was pro-war crime, do you think he's going to say so? <laughs> right. I mean, this, this isn't even good demagoguery. This is like bargain basement demagoguery. And also, by the, let's not forget that on the issue of Venezuela, you know, she points to past cases where the U.S., let's face it, you know, the Contras did not have a sterling human rights record. There were no pure good guys in Central America 
uh, in the 1980s. The question is, did you like the ones that were technically fighting on the side of liberty and democracy and anti-communism? Or did you like the shady guys who are on the side of communism? And those were, you know, those were our, our bad options there. This congresswoman is on the pro-dictator, pro-ongoing human rights abuses side, and the pro-famine side, right? So, you know, in Venezuela, this is not a hard choice in Venezuela. But if, if there was some sort of violent insurgency in Venezuela that was committing human rights abuses on a massive scale, yeah, this would be a different decision. We, we could very much, you know, it's very possible to look at a foreign policy fight and say, you know what, neither one of these guys are good guys. Neither one of these guys are acting in, in, in uh, adherence with American values. That's not what's happening here in Venezuela. Um, and I just think it's really fascinating that, you know, of all the regimes you could feel great sympathy towards, I think it says a great deal that she's running to the ramparts to defend the regime in Venezuela. All right, let's move on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And I, I guess on one level, you got to give Nancy Pelosi a, a molecule of credit. Uh, she's uh, clawed her way back into power after being in the minority for eight years. And uh, as soon as she gets there, she's got to deal with the with the wingnuts uh, of, of this new freshman class. She's, she had to smack down Omar for the anti-Semitism. Uh, I think she tried to dismiss uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as politely as possible by calling it the green dream or whatever. Uh, and making it clear that she doesn't think this is something the Democrats should be spending a whole lot of political capital on. Over on the Senate side, however, the leader of that chamber is more than happy to talk about the Green New Deal. That would be uh, Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who says, OK, you people want this so much. Let's bring it to a vote, which I think shocked a number of Democrats, including the guy who wrote the Senate bill. That would be Ed Markey of Massachusetts, who is now furious with Mitch McConnell for having a vote on this. Two tweets from Senator Markey. Don't let Mitch McConnell fool you. This is nothing but an attempt to sabotage the movement we are building. He wants to silence your voice so Republicans don't have to explain why they are climate change deniers. McConnell wants this to be the end. This is just the beginning. This isn't a new Republican trick. By rushing a vote on the Green New Deal resolution, Republicans want to avoid a true national debate and kill our efforts to organize. We're having the first national conversation on climate change in a decade. We can't let Republicans sabotage it, unquote. So, Jim, a lot to potentially unpack in there. But uh, essentially, Ed Markey knows he's going to lose and he's going to lose badly. And so uh, he's trying to buy some time here, which I'm not sure would help him anyway. Yeah. How dare you bring this legislation to the floor? <laughs> that we're like, wait, I thought that's what you guys wanted him to do. Um so, you know, typically, we, we've warned many times on this podcast, Greg, why people should not mess with Cocaine Mitch. Um, this is, you know, this this is kind of the classic, you know, strategy. And, and Democrats, if they're they're wiser, would would kind of think through and say, okay, our base wants things that are not necessarily going to play well when we face the uh, the electorate. We, we, that basically, this is the sort of thing that would be tougher to sell in a general election. We're going to need to kind of be a little more modest, be a little more careful, make sure we don't frighten people that we're going to end up uh, taking away something they really like or really care about, i.e. airplanes, <laughs> meat, uh, 88% of their current form of electricity. We need to make sure that, you know, our plan doesn't sound like sustenance farming, okay? Ideally, you would not write any of this stuff down <laughs> or you'd, you'd, you'd minimize how much it was written down. And it's worth noting, the resolution that was introduced by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her colleagues in the House is, is a resolution. I mean, it's not a, a piece of legislation. What it means is, the, it's basically, this is the sense of the House that we should do this. 
doesn't go into a lot of details about how they should do it. It's worth noting that, you know, yes, technically cow farts are not in there. That was part of the frequently asked questions sheet that was handed out, put out by her office, and that they suddenly said, ah, no, we totally didn't mean to do that. That was a draft. Ah, it's not in the final version, et cetera, et cetera. When people say, oh, it's not in the legislation, well, yeah, one, because the resolution has almost no real detail to it. It just It's, it's a to-do list. It's not a plan, right? If the next thing is you have to recognize all of you, you like a good chunk of the Democrats in the Senate are uh, are, are running for office. I'm going to use one gentle anecdote. It's Valentine's Day. I'm going to refer to, to Mrs. Campaign spot here. Lance, she's like, so how was your day? I'm like, well, let me tell you about Kirsten Gillibrand. She's like, oh, yeah, you told us about her. She's, you know, she stood up for tomato paste and... Uh, She's otherwise considered this nice lady. I'm like, no, honey, that's Senator Amy Klobuchar, the senator from Minnesota who's running for president. Uh, my wife is not is a very smart woman. My wife is fairly well attuned to what's going on in politics. She can't keep all the Democratic senators running for president straight, right? So my guess is the average voter is probably going to find have these you know, start mixing these people up. You got a lot of Democrats, and they're all going to try to outbid each other, running further to the left. So if you're if you're Nancy Pelosi, or if you're Chuck Schumer. You don't want your whole caucus voting on this. Let them do that. You want to keep what's going on in the presidential campaign trail and what's going on in the Senate as as separate as possible. Because most of those people running for office who are running for president, the Cory Bookers, the Klobuchars, the Gillibrands, the Kamala Harris's, look, New Jersey, New York, Minnesota, California, if you're an incumbent Democratic senator in most of these states, you're probably going to be fine, right? You can afford to go far to the left. You got to go really far to the left before you start endangering your reelection. And a bunch of these folks just got reelected in the last cycle or two. But for the rest of them, including the ones who are up in 2020, this is not such an easy vote. And all of a sudden, this starts coming into a situation where it's either you irk the base by saying, well, actually, no, I can't sign on to the Green, the green New Deal. Or you do sign on, and all of a sudden the you know national, uh, the National Republican Senatorial Committee is is doing a little dance because now they've got fodder for ads for the rest of the year. Senator so and so, who probably flies on private jets a lot, wants to take away your right to get on an airplane, stuff like that. So, um, you know, they they walk right into this. <laughs> it's you know, Marky's complaint. How dare they? You know, this is a bad faith. You no kidding. <laughs> This is what you do in politics. If your opponent says, I stand for X, you make them vote for X and you see whether they really mean it. Advocates of the Green New Deal should love this because actually what it's doing is it's separating the fake supporters, the inauthentic supporters from the ones who really mean it. And, you know, I think think moments like that are clarifying, Greg. Oh, it's fascinating. Yeah, apparently Amy Klobuchar has already said that uh, she's going to vote for it, uh, but she sees it as aspirational and symbolic, even though in the Senate, I don't think that's actually that the way it is, but uh, that's the way it's she's aspirational spinning. Aspirational and symbolic, much like her presidential campaign. <laughs> Crazy Democrats. They're going to keep us. We got, we got lots of material. Here's the upside of that, of that you know, not so great midterm, Greg. Plenty of material. Yeah, yeah. We're, uh, we're not running out anytime soon. Jim, uh, the good news is tomorrow really is Friday. See you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And be sure to tune in again on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.